welcome to Minute to Midnight. I promise I have a cool theme song in the works, but for now, you'll just have to listen to us talk. I'm Coley Taberson, and as a child of the 21st century, I feel the challenge of preparing a legacy of social and environmental justice weighing heavily on the shoulders of my generation. This inherited burden has manifested itself in an all-consuming anxiety that simultaneously induces paralysis and defines purpose. These emotions do not exist in absolutes, as even those who have focused their life and career pursuits towards repairing institutional injustice find themselves baffled by complex systems resistant to change. Through conversations with my peers, I aspire to highlight stories of passion and commitment to an ongoing struggle that is set to define our generation. I do not intend to entertain wishful thinking, nor do I believe our generation has some secret to solving generational struggles ingrained in the framework of modern industrialized nations. However, the immediacy of the climate crisis demands that we are the last generation that has a chance to redefine our species' relationship with our terrestrial home. A little about myself. I grew up in Muncie, Indiana and studied architecture at the University of Cincinnati. I'm now living in Portland, Oregon while working at an architecture firm. I strive to use this podcast to expand my worldview and continue researching social and environmental issues I care about while shedding light on my own shortcomings and blind spots through the perspectives of my peers. However, this project is on top of a full-time work commitment, so please excuse an irregular release schedule and varying quality of production. Podcasting is harder than I imagined, and I lost my energy to remove every like and um from our recordings. However, I will continue to grow and improve the show. Hopefully you'll stick around. The first ever guest of the pod is Evan Eskelson, a political economy master's student at Stockholm University and recent graduate of the Economics and Environmental Policy Bachelor's Program at the University of Cincinnati. But more importantly, Evan is a deeply passionate and sincere student of his surroundings. He was my roommate for the last two years, and he has continued to challenge me by demanding a holistic evaluation of every personal persuasion in order to facilitate earnest conversations. No fallacy will idly slip by in a conversation with Evan, Therefore, I think of no one better to start an open dialogue with the audience of this show. Thanks for listening. I think one thing um, I've realized in my preparation for this show is that I've tried to approach like really complex issues with this kind of an academic lens and like removing myself. And I feel like that's kind of I mean, that's how you're taught in school, like the scientific method. You need to eliminate bias. You need to kind of remove yourself from the equation and take out any possible um, conflict of your own interest. But I mean, I think a lot of issues, like you need to be in it. You need to be invested in it. And I've lived in a lot of bubbles in my life um, and I can talk and think about it. And I think that's maybe why Climate change to me has always been something that I felt comfortable talking about and having a perspective on because it feels universal and it affects everyone. Um, but yeah, I mean, even with that, like I'm not addressing the the intersection of uh, social and climate justice. Like it's a thing I can, I can talk about or, or maybe like in like an academic setting and you can read studies and research. But I know at the end of the day, I think like where I'm at right now, I just... I don't actually feel ready to like become maybe this person I thought I was ready to be like a, like a strong advocate or uh, voice for certain issues because yeah, end of the day, I just, I don't, I haven't felt it enough. Like maybe I know it, maybe I've read about it, 
but I think there's a point where you like I I talk about empathy but I don't know if I've gone through the process to actually empathize with people struggling um and I don't know I guess right now to me like the the crisis that is just everywhere in the city and you're you're, you're it's like impossible to look away is homelessness I mean it is a humanitarian crisis in Portland, and that's why I've been trying to get invested in this, this election. I mean, it's the topic every candidate statewide is talking about. Before we get too far down this road, I want to respond to this idea that you shouldn't participate because you're not like sufficiently expert. I, I think the right stance is to kind of have no stance and to respond based on the situation you're in. Um, but like the thing I'm thinking about is one of my friends here, uh, is Indian and we were talking about, um, water rights. And I feel like this is something that I kind in the U S context, I know kind of a lot about, like I took a class called water justice. I took an environmental justice class. So I mean, like relative to most people, I have kind of a lot of background in it, um, and so she was asking me questions, but, and at first I thought it was because she wanted to learn about it, but then quickly I realized that, or not quickly, slowly I realized that it was because she needed to, or she was trying to help me realize that my knowledge based only off of the U.S. context is really limited and that, like, she has very insightful ideas about access to water because where she lived in India didn't have access to water reliably. Right. And so it's like, whoa, I felt like very dumb, very American for being like so blatantly confident. But uh, as I've kind of thought about it, I think like the takeaway isn't that I should not talk about the things I do know. The takeaway is that I need to also listen to what she has to say and see how we can inform each other because no one is going to be able to know all of the things but if we do learn from each other then i think we're better off right so it, as it relates to you or anyone else talking about climate it's like you have a lot of insight because of the unique background you have yeah yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, that's also kind of the personal appeal for me of podcasting is that it is kind of this long form conversation. And um, I mean, the podcasts I like the most are not presented in a real uh, like narrative driven focus where it's not TED talk, you know, it's, it's really people just engaging in conversation and, you know, learning from each other. Um so yeah, that's why I kind of view myself in like the research phase of things. And I think leaving an academic setting, I did become a little less confident in what I know. Um, mostly because I've just, I've been now interacting with a lot of people that are kind of from different generations, different stages of life now. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really do want to just absorb what their lived experiences. And I think that's how I view this show, um, like the role it plays in my life personally. Um, and then, yeah, it has a dual focus also. Like, I feel like I want to share these stories because I, I think they could be relevant to more than just me. Um, but also it's, uh, I think the other side and why I think having 
succinct messaging is sometimes important. Um, and you're right. It depends on the pursuit. Like what is the goal? Um, I mean, there is a certain degree where I think I have kind of like a political brain in that, uh, or almost like a performative brain. Cause I think politics is acting. Um, uh, it is, it's theater, it's rhetoric. So I am trying to also define my own rhetorical style um, in a way that I could express what other people think or stories I've been told and kind of maybe pass on that information. I mean, and that's the whole act of like storytelling. That's like literature. That's what writers do. Um, and I, I don't know. I appreciate that a lot. And I think uh, architecture, I mean, uh, for me is kind of like graphic storytelling. I'm trying to get more comfortable with the idea of taking this like collage of ideas in my head and representing it in a way that people can understand. Um, and that is like the job of a politician. It's constituent work. It's meeting with people, hearing their stories, and then uh, presenting that um, in the form of policy or, you know, actual action, transforming ideas into law, yeah. I guess. So then you've been engaging with it in Oregon. How have you seen, like, you know, I mean, have you, like, read the websites, for example, of the candidates? I'm sure they're very succinct there. And then it's like, if they're able to watch a debate, then they're able to play it out a little bit more. I mean, to the extent that the medium allows, right, if you have two minutes to respond to some question, you can only go so far and you have to fit a lot in, but, like, perhaps they can say more things in rebuttals and whatnot. I don't know. I think a lot of people regard this governor's race as just being a kind of like a fluke um, in that in reality, like a Democrat should never lose a statewide election in Oregon. I mean, just the, the balance of like where people like most people live in this central Valley where all the big cities are Salem, Corrales, Eugene, Portland, um, there are, you know, some deeply conservative areas in the um, rural parts of central and eastern Oregon. But yeah, I mean, when it comes just down to electoral politics, like there really should be no way for a Republican to win. However, um, the effect of this independent candidate um, effectively is rendering it a dead heat between the Democrat and Republican around 34, 35%. And then the, uh, the independent polling anywhere between um, as low as like 10 to like 20 something. And then obviously some undecided as well, which honestly right now I, I consider myself a little undecided, which I've never really found myself. Yeah. That's a pretty like novel thing based off of the places that we've lived in. Are you more engaged because of it? Um, or do you feel like, it's confusing and you are hands off or something. Well, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier how I've never actually uh, participated in a campaign and I was thinking about um, doing that here. And then I was like, okay, who? Um, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, well, I mean, first of all, I didn't know any of the names of anyone in Oregon before coming here. So like the first step was just learn the names and I guess, you know, I probably was just going to default to Democrats uh, without doing a bunch of research. And I probably would have said, okay, Tina Kotek, you know, the platform she's running, uh, it, it hits a lot of, you know, my 
ideological bases um, sounds fine. So if I just did that base research, Tina Kotek would have made a lot of sense, you know, endorsed by Democratic Party. Um, but then I think the turning point for me was watching that debate beyond just like the like the fundamentals of their performances. Um, I found Tina Kotek to just constantly be trying to uh, like paint the election in very clear terms and uh, kind of make her Republican candidate out to be kind of like a nationalized, uh, you know, archetype of what a Republican is. Um, and, you know, maybe it is just uh, some good political maneuvering. I will say her Republican candidate, um, I think, is a very, very skilled politician. I think she really... Um, had refined her message to get at what uh, people in Oregon are really frustrated about. And then very squarely, without like any room for doubt, tie those uh, concerns to Tina Kotek. And I think that maybe partly is she realizes she does have to win over Democrats. She has to get votes in Portland. Um, and if not necessarily get Democrats, she just needs to turn Democrats away from Tina Kotek and then maybe get them to vote for Betsy Johnson, the independent. And, you know, um, it fucking is working. I mean, like, even someone that is politically engaged, like, I'm seriously considering voting for Betsy Johnson. One, I find her to be kind of um, like a charismatic figure. And I don't think that's the most important thing about a politician. But um, more than anything, I feel like she just kind of disrupts a political machine in Oregon that has just left a lot of people frustrated and not really heard and um rough it's a rough scene and i don't know i mean i don't mean to just tie tina kotek to this uh the failure of her party um but at the same time i don't really see how she can pull away from the uh kind of inaction and kind of uh bureaucratic uh incompetence of the oregon government so yeah, it's it's interesting that I find myself willing to vote for someone that I don't think is actually a perfect ideological match, mostly because also it's going to be divided government. Um, the state is still going to be uh, owned and operated by Democrats, no matter what happens in this governor's race. It's widely viewed as a fluke because of the three candidates. And really, uh, if a Republican gets in, if an independent gets in, um, it will definitely uh, take power away from Democrats, but it's not... Like, it's not necessarily flipping the state. And I don't know how much of my um, support for Reggie Johnson is almost just a kind of dissatisfaction with how Tina Kotek has ran her campaign. And I mean, I get it. Like, like she's trying to invigorate people to vote and she's trying to keep attention on um, abortion, abortion access, because I mean, that's, that's fucking important, obviously. And like, I am not trying to diminish that argument. I just think that when the problems facing Oregon as a state, like abortion is not under threat in the state of Oregon, um, housing, like fit, there are 15,000 homeless people in Oregon that like, that's the issue. And that's tied up with a mental health crisis. We're 50th in the nation in mental health services. Um, that also contributes to our public defender system is last in the nation. Like, there's a lot of things that Oregon is really, like, reeling from. And I just, I, I don't really see how making this an argument about um, kind of the culture war issues, which, you know, I, I mean, it, it feels very uh, conflicting for me because at the same time, I've definitely... Um, 
like believe that you know democrats could win on these culture war issues because a lot of people do share you know the the ideological beliefs of democrats but don't find themselves connected to candidates so i get why she's doing it i just think that the people of oregon want different and know better uh than the campaign she's running so is that too much of a knee-jerk reaction? I mean, I've only been here for a little while, and maybe I'm trying to digest too much too fast. It's challenging to like fit yourself into some structure that exists independent of you and that doesn't really move as politics shifts and as certain issues arise and fall. Right? I mean, maybe this is part of the thing that defines our, our politics. Again, going back to the question of like, where is their value to have like clear, like signifiers of an idea versus actually talking about the idea. Um, and I've been, was recently listening to uh, my sister actually recommend this podcast from, uh, I think it was American Psychological Association, and they're kind of talking about the the political mind and how we respond to, kind of like a politically charged term. So a lot of people, um, like critical race theory. I mean, first off, it was, the term was chosen very deliberately. Like, uh, I, I, I don't, this is going to be a future Coley thing. The, the guy from Seattle, you know, that like kind of started this whole wave and like got in the ear of Donald Trump and then took off on Fox News. That guy is Christopher Rufo. His rise to conservative stardom began in July 2020 when a City of Seattle employee leaked an anti-bias training video to the journalist and documentary filmmaker. After publishing a story on the website City Journal, Rufo received countless more recorded anti-bias and sensitivity trainings from frustrated civil servants. Rufo then worked to trace back the sourcing of the presentations that commonly referred to anti-racist texts like Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. These texts further appeared to reference a body of work from the 1990s by a group of legal scholars self-defined as critical race theory. Through his conservative activism, Rufo has described his frustrations with a lagging political rhetoric to describe conservative objection to an advancing progressive culture in government and educational institutions. He even said, It's not that elites are enforcing a set of manners and cultural limits. They're seeking to re-engineer the foundation of human psychology and social institutions through a new politics of race. It's much more invasive than mere correctness, which is a mechanism of social control, but not the heart of what's happening. Critical race theory is the perfect villain. If you want to learn more about Christopher Rufo and the rise of critical race theory, check out the New Yorker article that I linked in the show notes. Um, I mean, he found the like literary and scholarly study of critical race theory and then basically made that a buzzword because, I mean, the term itself, like critical race, like that already kind of puts people like on edge. You know, I mean, white people are very uncomfortable talking about race, um, myself included. Like it's not easy i think this issue is used to um charge up the republican base i don't know if it's very effective actually with like swing voters or people that aren't really tuned into conservative media can you imagine what not being tuned into political media that's like hard for me to get my head around just to like imagine yeah oh okay here's i have a stat that i'll put in here that uh, uh Hey, Future Coley here. Uh, you probably already noticed, but 
this will be an ongoing bit in the show so that I can rely on a future version of myself to provide factual background for concepts referred to in the show without misrepresenting ideas in the moment while allowing for a natural flow of conversation. So according to an annual survey conducted by Gallup over the last 20 years, between 23 to 43% of American adults are closely following political media with peaks during presidential election years. However, in 2021, only 22% of the 18 to 34 demographic was following political media closely, while nearly half of the 55 plus age group was. Overall, there has been an increase in attention in non-national election years in 2002 across all age groups. Very small. It's like 10%. That's my guess. I'll figure out what it is later. What? Really? Yeah, so not that accurate, but still important to remember that not everyone follows political media, and often people that do follow political media very closely are overrepresented in survey, polling, and focus groups. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm like, here, here was my flow of ideas. I said, I feel like I don't know anyone who's not avidly interested in politics. And then I went, the only people I talk to are in a political economy master's program. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, I would say moving to Portland, um, meeting people my age that have moved here, uh, I've met a lot of people that are very, like, just don't even vote. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it feels crazy to me, but at the same time, like, I can very clearly define their logic. And when they talk about it, like, I get it. And that's why, like, I'm trying to be... I definitely have a way of like <laughs> pushing conversations into getting political. Um, that was an air quotes since I realized it's a podcast and no one can see my air quotes. Um, a lot, you know, and I don't mean to like turn people off. Like I, I think especially coming from the Midwest, like for a very long time, and I think this has been disrupted recently, but political conversations are like not dinner table conversations. They're not like something you just casually talk about with friends it's like i mean it's the trope of your drunk uncle at a thanksgiving you know so i like i understand like people's background i just saw uh yeah one of the professors at uc in the business school she just posted some uh webinar that they have about how to make politics uh not political uh, and the like caption that she put on on this is that you're in the business world you're inevitably inevitably going to run into some political conversation and you need to know how to handle yourself in it and i was like what an epitome of cincinnati which is like this really divided um population politically yeah so just because people don't listen to political media um, or are tuned in to maybe like specific candidates or partisan policies and all of that, like, doesn't mean they don't hold political positions. Um, so like personally, like I like getting at those issues and like, instead of talking about critical race theory, it would be refreshing to, you know, talk about things in plain terms that we can understand. And, uh, I, in that podcast I was referring to earlier, they use the example of, all right, so we built a bunch of interstates in the 1950s. Right. And I think anyone can tell looking at a map that it wasn't just random where these roads like carved up neighborhoods um and that has like a very like permanent 
division of land and uh, degrading of assets that doesn't really have like a lifespan. And it, uh, it basically has taken away wealth from property owners situated along interstate corridors. Um, and that's like consistent. I feel like any city you go to, um, some cities do it better than others. Cincinnati was kind of one of the more egregious examples. I think they also kind of use it as a scapegoat to create a whole industrial corridor. Um, it wasn't really just interstate. They kind of just obliterated the West side, um, the West end, not the, the West side. Um, but yeah, when you look at that, I mean, it's pretty clear, like those were communities of color. Like when these decisions were being made, it was very clear that there was a value system that uh, white communities were more valuable and therefore should be uh, protected from these infrastructure projects, but then be served by the infrastructure uh, to allow for their economic prosperity. And this happened in a, you know, a a pre-civil rights era country, um, yet the effects, even though racism in you know the capital R sense that uh, I don't really know what people mean whenever you're like small d democrat big d like I don't I don't know what small r versus big r racism is um so I had a sociology class my freshman year and we kind of talked about like all the different types of like racism and I think like the capital R racism is usually referred to as like Jim Crow racism that's like another term for it it's what like enshrined like more collective. yeah i mean it's like it's like the very overt racism like when you use a racial slur or you like hold an active prejudice oh, against okay. a person of another race um and that's like you know obviously very clear to define and i think this is the uh i, I don't know what they call it this would maybe another future coley moment hey me again this is the last one for today i promise So they, as in some opponents of educational programs teaching about institutionalized racism and structural inequality, shape an historical pedagogy of American exceptionalism. Its foundation begins with the ideology empowering the American Revolution and its first reference in 1835 by Alexis de Tocqueville, who described America as a nation unlike any other in human history due to its values and political system. Therefore, proponents argue this gives the nation an entitlement to a prominent role in global politics and a responsibility to transform the world. The idea has been used as justification for countless different worldviews and theories about the national story of America and comes in many more shades than the clear black and white narrative championed by contemporary conservative pundits. Honestly, we should do a whole episode on this topic because it has so many layers of history behind it. But for now, just know that the modern Republican Party has used the idea to create a binary that positions a more holistic retelling of American history and race education against patriotism and the foundation of our republic. But it's kind of the the like great nation story where it's this linear progression from uh, we're an imperfect democracy, we had slavery, we got rid of slavery, we had unequal rights, now we have equal rights. What is it called? I don't know if this is what they call it they whoever that is but like i call these things like hero's journey that you like overcame okay. some problem and now you're better you like had to put in some work yeah and then you solved the problem yeah yeah well yeah again and I, I don't know if it has um is kind of divisive of a name is like critical race theory like obviously that is trying to lump together like all this other opposing thought into like one idea and uh, I think 
that hasn't necessarily been done. But I mean, it's kind of like the the America first, like this, uh, like I want children to love our nation, like that kind of uh, narrative. And I think that narrative views racism kind of in those very exclusive terms of like the capital R racism, the Jim Crow racism, like, okay, well, this was really bad. Um, no one's defending it, but it's over, right? Um, and I think obviously like what's being taught isn't critical race theory. It is uh, this idea that there are institutionalized effects that once you just change your laws and make people equal under the authority of a government, it doesn't necessarily uh, immediately grant equality. Um, and that's because of a lot of these like institutionalized things. Um, funny enough, though, apparently also people react poorly to the idea of institutionalized racism. And that's a word that is also divisive. Um, so yeah, it's tough. Like, I mean, you have to talk about things in like plain, uh, language that people understand and can connect to. Um, but that's like a long conversation and it's not something that can become like a, a slogan for a rally or a chant or something that parents are going to be outraged about at a school board meeting. Right. It's, that's way more nuanced and there's not one way to teach like the history of racism in our country. But I think, uh, I think maybe the, the core problem and like why this is so divisive is that we have two competing ideas of like what this nation is and we don't really have a national story. Like, is it this very unified, um, progressive message and the spreading of democracy around the world? And um, I mean, that's a very elegant story. And I think it's one that we all bought into as a country for a really long time. And then uh, I think sometime in, you know, in my parents' lifetime, I think that's when it broke down. Like I think of they're the children of the Vietnam War protests. And I think maybe that was when the, obviously I wasn't alive and I'm not going to try to make one pinpoint, but I think that was an important uh, time where we started to really question uh, the morals of our nation and this idea that we're acting uh, under the disguise of freedom and liberty. I think that was kind of upended in that, that era. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about like our awareness of different history, right? Because I think like history is funny because it, it is a factual. It expresses itself in interesting ways, but like you could say actually what happened to tell the story of history takes like storytelling, um, and so in in that way it can be like modified. And I guess I view it right now as like a tool of hegemony and so like the historical narratives are sort of it, it and like the way we tell history is reshaped as hegemony shapes and like needs some new telling of history uh to like fit their narrative of power or whatever but what's interesting in like the u.s is that we have sort of like a bipolar world right and so we have some liberal hegemony that's like allowing you and me to care more about chat more challenging idea of, of history and then there's also a conservative hegemony that sees this challenging idea of history as challenging its own power and so then it's like required to reshape the way that they tell history and so that's like why it's necessary to push back on like critical race theory in schools or whatever um, because it would challenge their authority. Um, 
I had to Google hegemony. <laughs> um, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is maybe a lot of things, but it's kind of hard to to define. I wonder what Google said. Oh, okay. Wait here. I'll give you. I'll give you the Google definition for context. Um, leadership or dominance, especially by one country or social group over others. Germany was under Prussian hegemony after eighteen seventy one. That is the the context there. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it is reasonable to use examples. Um, it is like a a social idea. Um, and a whole bunch of people have different ideas of it. Like Marx sees capitalism as hegemony and that like capitalists are part of upholding the capitalism hegemony. Um, political scientists see a liberal world order with like states that interact in multilateral institutions like the UN and like engage in trade that's like mostly free and then um, have like militaries that like an economic entanglement and like McDonald's is like, have you heard the thing that's like, if, if you have a McDonald's, like no countries that have McDonald's have ever like attacked each other. Like they say that's liberalism. And, um, and they say that, uh, that liberalism is hegemony. I think it's kind of like what is powerful and what asserts forces on the way society builds itself. And they use this, this term reproduction, um, the way society reproduces itself as in like how it will continue in the future. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like an interesting and idea. Education plays a key role in that. No, absolutely. Right. I mean, it's like yeah. a, a very fundamental tool in shaping the collective psyche of the world and in the context of the u.s like i think international relations people would use the word word hegemony and would be okay with seeing two hegemons and it would be called like bipolar or a multipolar world um and they have a bunch of thoughts about it uh that are all drawn from like cold war stuff like in the U.S., like we have two dominant parties, uh, and especially with media spaces that are bifurcating, it, I think it is really easy for you to have two dominant ways of social reproduction. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible to like hold these kind of competing realities in your mind at the same time and? like kind of consider the arguments behind both of them without necessarily defining yourselves yourself in the the terms dictated by those two sides like do you have to be a part of one of those groups or can you just independently consider those different worldviews and then draw maybe your own conclusion is that possible this came up in one of my conversations with another American who's in my master's program. He was noting that one of the other, or it seems like a lot of people who uh, are from outside the U.S. and care about politics and end up studying American politics are actually really good at uh, assessing the arguments of both sides. Um, and 
the like conclusion we came to is that that is a product of not being within the system. But I think that if you're in the system, like before you could decide to be impartial, you were influenced by uh, whatever hegemony was locally uh, powerful, right? I mean, so like, and, and locally can change, right? So maybe you were really influenced by your parents, or maybe you were really influenced by the politics of your town, or maybe uh, you had to become more critical because there was conflict about these things or something, but like, because you were born in it and raised in it, uh, and this happened before you were able to decide you wanted to be impartial, I think that that like jades your uh, uh, ability to be impartial. So I don't know if you and I could ever like accurately, I think a lot of people can try, right? I mean, like political scientists at universities try really hard, but I think it can only go so far. I mean, I've definitely met people that have seemingly contradictory political beliefs in the sense that, I mean, they can't be clearly defined under like a party label. Maybe it's because those people are forming their beliefs outside of this common political rhetoric and media. And maybe that's the 90% of the population that doesn't really follow political media, right? So, I mean... I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to exist outside the political realm. Like, I, I don't think you could form your beliefs outside of the political realm. Like, you could, you could form them in a way that allowed you to support some Republican and some Democrat policies, but you couldn't arrive at those conclusions and not have had the state of politics or the history of politics affect your ideas, I think. We can paint these pictures that are really like frightening, right? And there's a whole lot of reasons to support um, the narrative you laid out. Uh, but I do think that sort of like taking a step back and saying, I actually don't know a whole lot about everything makes me feel better that I'm kind of like, well, you know. And even if I did understand it, like what would that accomplish? But like my response to these things that are really hard is to recognize that I'm just like on a conveyor belt with another 7.8 billion people and like things are gonna happen independent of, of me. Uh, and like I kind of just have to go on with my life. And yeah, and that sort of like helps me relax it isn't so helpful to be unrelaxed yeah yeah no i mean i think that kind of goes back again to like one of the central ideas of the podcast is uh, this oscillating between uh you know inspiration optimism and then existential dread i think that's uh like all these things beyond our own existence that we can't control 
Yeah, but isn't like existential dread like necessarily something that goes on in the background? Isn't doesn't it stop being definable as existential dread if it's something that you're like frightened about in the moment? Hmm. I guess I mean I guess that kind of is in the vein of like an existential crisis when someone can no longer uh think about like being present in a moment and are instead preoccupied by factors outside themselves um and yeah obviously that's not good like i don't think um it's like kind of a losing argument to say that it's worthwhile to be attuned to the kind of the narratives of the world um if it's gonna just cause pain to yourself like i i think let's say you want to create climate conscious people yeah i I don't think you're going to be very successful if your main goal is to just over um stimulate people with all the with their they're true right it's like a lot of truths like we're not in a great place like there's a lot to be pessimistic about um but i guess and i think this is maybe a goal of mine that i've settled on recently is how do you fight apathy apathy kind of feels like a plague to me more so than i don't know a lot of other ideas that might be um like more commonly referred to like the idea of democracy dying right like when people say this is an election for democracy and i think both democrats and republicans are um using that messaging when democracy is on the line this and that and that I think a lot of people don't really feel like democracy has done a lot for them lately. Um, I, I mean, when you connect democracy as an ideal to just the state of the country and where we're at, um, yeah, I mean, I think I would agree that uh, it's not really fruitful for us. I think maybe the greater successes are coming from from other places. Um, I mean, I personally find a lot of connection in art. Art feels like kind of a valuable use of uh my time on this planet um it's something i connect to so i guess how do you uh democracy is important so how do you convince people that it is worth saving i just finished like submitted like a couple hours ago right this this big essay for school and i kind of referenced this um in the context of like green growth and degrowth which are two sort of uh approaches to solving um, planetary boundaries and sustainability and things like this. And the ideas I have that support um, degrowth, which is more grassroots, is that like green growth operates in the public space. It requires uh, the tools of it are like big international agreements like the Paris Climate Accords or like COP27 uh, happening in like a couple weeks in Cairo or like, uh, the inflation reduction act, which spends a lot of money, like a lot of money on, um, subsidies and that, that, that will help research and innovation and, uh, sustainability transitions. Right. Um, this is like what happens in the public space, but also in the public space because like precisely because it's public, it's it's slower like it's kind of sometimes the jumps are bigger or usually the jumps are really big because they're happening at sort of like 
an aggregate level. Um, and so you see like hundreds of billions of dollars, but then like how much of those hundreds of billions of dollars are going to affect you? Like if, unless if you get an EV uh, and you're able to leverage the tax credit, which like basically no one is because they all like are getting purchased um, because not enough cars are fully produced in the U.S. or whatever. Um, or, you know, a number of these kinds of limitations. Uh, the point is that not everyone, like, experiences it in their life. Uh, and that's because it takes place in, like, the public sphere and then is dispersed over many people. I think the way you address apathy um, isn't by operating in, in that space because it's it's slower and not as personal. I think uh, to address it, you have to work at the grassroots level, which I think like degrowth does. Um, and so in terms of saving democracy, I think like grassroots organization, understanding the problems that are relevant for the location you're in, um, you know, trying to figure out like why there's so much traffic on this road and like if we put in a roundabout will that make it better for people as they're like crossing the street in like a thing that they do all the time or like picking up trash in your area or like like things that people will wake up and at least like one time a week feel the benefit of then they'll realize that like taking actions in this way um, makes their lives better and they'll be less apathetic about it. Uh, I think that's sort of how you convince people that politics is like a worthwhile endeavor. Um, and I think sometimes there's this notion that because you're operating at like a grassroots level, that the scale of impact is lower. And like, in a matter of fact, if you pass one bill and one of them happens in a neighborhood and one of them happens in the nation in fact it is less but i think because it is dispersed and it necessarily engages a whole lot more people like if you were to aggregate it it could be like more money for example as one metric but maybe the more important thing is that it perpetuates action like because you experienced the benefits of it you don't say like okay now I'm done you say like oh wow this was the avenue to making my life better like I'm going to continue to leverage this tool that I just learned about and I think that is like key to a whole bunch of things that uh that we tend to miss because we take really zoomed out uh, views of of our problems. So I think kind of this feels like a good moment to return to what I view as kind of a core question of this show and this whole project, and it's a deeply personal one for me. I don't want to lose my my ability to empathize, and I also realize that uh, I don't think empathy is something that comes natural. I think you have to to a certain degree, teach yourself to really engage in that empathy. But how do you avoid burning out? Um, so the central question that I was alluding to is, uh, 
how do you feel the weight of the world without being crushed by it? And that's kind of an open question to myself and to this audience, if there is an audience. (laughs) And I guess, yeah, that's a dialogue that is just beginning. I don't really see there ever being an answer to it, but I think it's, uh, I feel comfort in having the conversation. And I think it's, uh, it gives me motivation just to hear from my peers, to hear from people like Evan, um, to hear from all the guests we're going to have on this show, how they kind of find solace in a deeply flawed society that may be able to change, but is not necessarily willing. So I guess with that, thank you, Evan. Thank you for being my very first guest. Um, I'm really glad that you could be here. I think this was quite a journey. I have a lot of work ahead of me to get this on the air. So uh, (laughs) if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever platform you use, thank you. It might be a shit show for a little while. Uh, We don't have an editing team. Leave a comment. He will actually read it because... He'll get maybe two total. Yeah, so just like Evan said, please, please, please let me know what you think. The success of this show relies on engaging with its audience. If you have any lingering questions, concerns of how we represented important concepts, or suggestions for how to improve the show, please share your perspective. We are on Instagram at 11 underscore 59 underscore pod. Each episode will have a post to accompany it for you to voice public opinion. Also, feel free to DM us on Instagram or email us. Links to all of this and some key resources used for this episode are in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. See, in air quotes, you next time. Bye.